Chapter 21 of Links in Rebecca's Life by Pansy. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 21. She has a chance to be strong. It was much more than an ordinary matter that was clouding her face with such a look of anxiety and distress. She was leaning against the bureau in their room, watching her husband while he went hurriedly from drawer to table, busy with papers and packages and preparations that looked like a move of some sort. "'I can't understand it, Frank,' she said at last. "'There is no use in talking with me. I shall never see it in the light that you do. Why should your life be put in peril for the bank any more than the others who have ever so much larger interests there?' "'My dear child, I am the only young man in town who has interests there that he can help control. There are hundreds who have placed their money there for us to take care of, and we must be true to our trust, even if it should be at the peril of life, which I am not afraid of. I dare say it was an absurdly false alarm of that cowardly youngster who sleeps there. He is too young and too foolish to be trusted in such a place anyway. But why can't you place the whole thing in the hands of the police? Well, there are grave reasons against that. In the first place, as I said, it is probably nothing at all, and to set the police at work at nothing will start talk, stories of all sorts. It is as likely to create a bank panic as not. People are fools when their pockets are at stake. And besides, if there is a plan to rob the bank and the police or the law takes it in hand too soon, it will simply quiet the whole thing, not arrest it, and we shall have the pleasure of being in jeopardy all the time and not know which way to look for the villains. "'I don't care if all the money in the bank is stolen if you are safe at home,' his wife said with a sort of persistent despair in her voice. She had little hope of moving him, but she could not help saying it. He turned toward her, speaking tenderly. "'That does not sound like my brave, conscientious wife.' I had an idea you would want me to brave danger for the sake of duty. But I don't see the duty at all. You will when you think about it quietly. My dear Rebecca, you have often come to me with a strong word from the Bible that has helped me forward. Is it my turn now? Do you remember what we read at prayers this morning? Then Paul answered, What mean ye to weep and to break mine heart? For I am ready not to be bound only, but also to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus." "'That is such a very different thing,' she said, wiping the hot tears from her face. "'The Lord Jesus had given him directions to go to Jerusalem, and he knew his work was there.' "'But, dear wife, you and I believe that the Lord Jesus still gives directions to his servants. I have asked him for mine, and I as firmly believe that my work, and hence my duty, lies at the bank tonight, as Paul could have believed it to be his duty to go to Jerusalem. It is a different place, and the work is different, but the Lord commands us both.' What could Rebecca say? Her heart beat hard and fast, and she felt her whole soul rising up in rebellion against this idea of duty, but she had reasoned in the same way many a time. She could not gainsay her husband. "'For all that,' he said again in an altered tone, "'I think we are making quite too serious a business of this thing. I really do not expect any trouble at all. At the same time I shall take every precaution and incur no risks that are not necessary.' and I shall expect to be ready for a hearty breakfast at the usual hour tomorrow morning, and prepared to laugh at you for your fears. But, Frank, you don't know. No, he said, changing back to the thoughtful and tender tone. It is true, I don't know. Neither do you and I know when we lie down at night that we may not awaken in another world. But I am fully persuaded that it is my duty to guard the interests of the firm, and the interests of those hundreds who have trusted us. Now, Rebecca, that last verse this morning was— and when he would not be persuaded, we ceased, saying, The will of the Lord be done. Can't you give me that message? His will toward us is a very tender one. We are always in the midst of dangers, but he cares for us. Notwithstanding all of which comforting words, she sat down in a wilted heap on the foot of the bed, 
and gave herself up to bitter weeping as soon as ever the door had closed after her husband. All this trouble was born of an impression, rather than a belief, that there was a bold laid scheme to rifle the bank, and that the plans were likely to be carried out that very night. It could hardly be said that anybody actually believed that such would be the case. Indeed, the seniors smiled at the notion, and ridiculed the supposed proofs, which were certainly meager and poorly founded, but they nevertheless admired and applauded the young cashier's announcement that he would take the place of the youthful underteller who slept in the bank, and that he would arm himself heavily and be prepared for rough work should there be occasion. It was hardly possible to do much more than this, without, as he had explained to his wife, putting the scamps on guard, if there were any scamps, or creating a panic in the minds of ignorant people who should hear rumors that they did not understand. Everyone admired Frank Edwards's determination, except his wife. She had to bear the horrible burden of her fear and anxiety in secret. Her mother-in-law was still too feeble to be trusted with a knowledge of such a state of things, and only knew that business matters connected with the bank required his absence from home, and she thought from town, for the night. So Rebecca watched and cried, and prayed through the long hours of that night in solitude. She had eagerly urged that at least her husband should not stay alone, and when he had represented to her that it so happened that none of those whose duty called them to peril their safety for the sake of the bank were in town, save old men and the young teller who was too frightened to be of service, she had suggested John Milton. Her husband's surprise when he said, "'Ought I to invite him into what may be danger, when he has no interest at stake and is not bound by any possible sense of duty to be there?' made her cheeks flush as she answered, "'But you could explain to him. I know he would not be afraid.' "'But suppose harm should come to him. Would you and I like the feeling that we were the cause? Would we like to meet his mother knowing that?' So she was silenced, and could only cry and wait. People are less wise, and more in danger often in this life than they suppose. It turned out that the young teller, who was sure that he had heard whispers of what concerned the bank, was correct, and it turned out that Frank Edwards's bold, rapid pistol shots prevented a heavy loss, and arrested two of the villains who had planned so skillfully. And it also turned out that he was wounded himself, and came home before breakfast indeed, but came in a slow-moving carriage, with his unconscious head lying on John Milton's breast while Dr. Ferry watched his pulse with keen, anxious eyes, and an older doctor shook his wise head with a solemn frown when his eyes rested on the deathly face. Oh, the awfulness of the days that followed, alternating between hope and fear, and settling at last into the dreadful certainty of coming death. "'The shot will not kill him, but the fever will,' said the gray-headed doctor. "'He can't be saved from brain fever.' And he wasn't saved from it, though surely they worked as few other doctors ever had, Dr. Ferry never leaving him day or night save to snatch a mouthful of food or an hour of sleep that should help him to keep up and watch. As for Rebecca, she did hardly even that, and her strength did not fail her. Instead, it seemed to increase as the days passed, her intense, feverish, determined strength to hold on to her husband, to save him, to cling so closely, so persistently, so fiercely that even death would be terrified and shrink away. But who can fight with death? Steadily his awful shadow crept, steadily his fierce grip tightened until even the doctors failed to speak one encouraging word, or look one encouraging glance. Their hope was gone. Still Rebecca wrestled and groaned in spirit and clung. "'He must not die!' it was all she could say. She turned sharply away from the anxious, pitiful pastor, who tried with trembling lips to beg her to pray for strength, to say, "'The will of the Lord be done,' she said with fierce brevity of speech and manner. "'You don't know what you are talking about. Don't talk to me!' She would have no help from anyone. She made no complaint, she shed no tears, she uttered no moan. She just hung over her husband with that dreadful face of living death and held on. And it did no good. He was slipping from her, going without a word of good-bye, a glance of recognition. 
yet almost the last words she had ever heard him say were, The will of the Lord be done. One morning John Milton caught her as she was passing swiftly through the upper hall. He seized her hand and held it with an eager grasp. One minute, just one minute, Rebecca, for the sake of my pity for you. I am not going to torment you. I just have a word of blessing. This is what you are privileged to say. None of these things move me, neither count I my life dear unto myself. This is more than life, she said in a cold, hard tone. Yes, I know, but you don't want him to live for his sake. It is for yours, don't you see? Don't count your life dearer unto yourself than it is to the Lord Jesus. I tell you, he has said of you, I will show her how great things she must suffer for my sake. Rebecca, you have learned how to do things for his sake. Aren't you willing for the higher honor? There are those, true Christians too, to whom these words would have been no help, but they came to Rebecca like a revelation. How had she panted for work, something by which she could honor her Lord? She knew that had been her motive. She had prayed for it in eagerness of soul. Was this the answer? Oh, not this, not this! She was not strong enough for this. She could not honor him so. She should bring disgrace. She had already. She had begged for something to do, not for something to suffer. She had never wanted that. She gave a low, pitiful cry, as of one who was wounded to the very depths. I can't do it, John. I can't. I can't. No, poor soul, he said quickly. Of course you can't. Do you think he expects it of you to bear such a trial as this? It is awful. I know it is. He knows it is. Remember what he knows of human anguish. I tell you, he will bear it for you. He stands waiting. You must believe me. Take it to him. How white and wan she was. She turned hollow yet searching eyes on him and spoke quickly. John, I don't know what you mean. I wish I did. Oh, in my very soul, I wish I did. How can I ask him any better than I have? He doesn't hear me. The wise-hearted young man attempted no shocked rebuttal of her pitiful statement, did not try to prove that he always hears and that she must not speak such words. Instead he said, I tell you, Rebecca, I wouldn't pray any more for his life. Your prayers are before him, and he will give you that answer if, for Frank's sake and yours, he can. Now I would ask for grace, growing grace, you know, ask for grace to suffer so that his name may be honored. It is given to you to show what a Christian can bear from the hand that loves her, how she can trust still. The chance is yours. You can't do it, but he will do it through you, if you will let him. Don't struggle any more. Rest." She stood for a full minute looking up at his earnest, eager face. Then she said, "'John, I believe you have helped me.' Then she ran swiftly back to her husband. As for John Milton, he turned off into an unoccupied room and buried his head in the cushions and cried like a child. Do you think Rebecca did not get her help? I tell you she did. It will not do to sneer and scoff at such truths as these. You are in no danger of ever being able to test them so long as you sneer, it is true. But the old proof holds good still. If any man will do his will, he shall know of the doctrine. Rebecca Edwards knows that the Lord came to her, and held her hand, and said to the storm in her heart, Peace, be still. And the tempest stilled. The days went on just the same after that. Only those watching around that sick man spoke lower and with a touch of reverence when they addressed his wife. They saw the change. The pale face was calm, the voice low, gentle, steady. The fierceness was entirely gone from her manner. She was just as watchful, just as alert, twice as helpful, but she was even then at rest. There were those who could not see it without tears. There came an evening when that peculiar, solemn hush settled down on the house that betokens the very presence of the king. 
The quick moving up and down, to and fro, to try this or that, ceased. There was no more trying. Rebecca knelt by her husband's side and held his quiet, nerveless hand. His mother sobbed unrestrainedly at his other side. He did not hear her. Dr. Ferry, with white lips and whiter face, stood watching at the foot. Other of the friends held back in respectful silence, ready to do, unwilling to intrude on sorrow like this. There were still others less considerate. They whispered in the rooms outside, among them Sally Holland. Sally didn't know how to whisper, yet she essayed to do it. "'She is wonderfully quiet, poor thing,' she whispered, meaning his wife. "'I didn't think she would bear it so. Some people thought she married him for his money. I never did, but you can't tell. I'm sure I'm glad she can take it so.' Rebecca shivered as if in an egg fit. The fire was hot, the flames were fierce and scorching. If she was not to do it to show how great things she could suffer for his sake, what was it for? Must even this be denied her? Would they dare to think that she did not love him next to God? Dr. Ferry stepped forward and closed the door, and Sally Holland had a glimpse of his stern face. She shuddered a little, and wondered if Dr. Ferry thought such an ugly scowl was becoming. Then even she was still. The door opened again in a minute. It let in the gray-haired doctor. He came softly to the bedside. He looked at the quiet face on the pillow. He exchanged quick glances with Dr. Ferry. He stepped one side and whispered to John Milton, "'Get her out quietly.' Rebecca heard it. She heard everything. "'I'll go,' she said, moving, and John put his arm around her and helped her out. At the door of the library where he put her, she said, "'John, help his mother.' So he went back. Five minutes afterward he came softly. Rebecca was kneeling before her husband's chair in the library. "'May I come?' he asked. "'May I come? Rebecca, I want to tell you something.' "'I know what it is,' she said, without looking up. "'Don't speak.' I don't know whether you can or not. Can you be as still and brave for his sake as you have for the Lord's?" Then she looked up. "'What do you mean?' "'I mean that the crisis that has been so near to death is past. Dr. Gray says there is wonderful change. He says he will live.' Then, indeed, Rebecca lost her self-control and her consciousness together. "'Joy doesn't kill,' John Milton said, aloud and joyfully, as he laid her on the couch and bent over her. "'It is a second miracle.' The Lord's hand has stayed the knife, just as faith had triumphed, and said, The will of the Lord be done. End of chapter 21